Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to promote the Christian Libertarian Review by interviewing one of the co-authors of one of the articles. Alex Salter is with us, and he is the Assistant Professor of Economics at Texas Tech University and Comparative Economics Research Fellow at the Free Market Institute. He's the co-author of the article, Dead Ends and Living Currents, Distributism as a Progressive Research Program. It is a journal article from the Christian Libertarian Review, Volume 1. And distributism is, of course, the topic of today's episode. Alex, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Doug. I'm really happy to talk about it with you. So uh, it, it's unfortunate, but uh, Eugene, your co-author, could not join us for uh, you know the last minute. Um, so it's going to be you answering this question one-sidedly. What's it like writing an article? And if you've written more than one, you can share broad experience with someone who isn't like your direct coworker. You're, you know, you're not neighbors. You were at, you said you were at actually at uh, other ends of the country. What's it like co-authoring something? I've always wanted to know that. You know, it's actually quite straightforward as long as you uh, as long as you have a good idea of who you're co-authoring with and what your respective talents and contributions to the piece are. So I think that the way that this particular project unfolded was that Gene Callahan wrote for the American Conservative, uh, a popular outlet, an article on distributism, as I was happening to do some research on it, intending to write a scholarly article on distributism. And so I contacted him and suggested that we work together on this paper, and the rest is history. So the reason that this worked out so well is because we had a pretty clear idea of, again, what the division of labor was going to be going into it. We set up an outline. Uh, we each had our respective parts that we worked on. And this next part was just pure happenstance. It was purely fortuitous that our writing styles actually meshed up pretty well. So that's not something that you can consciously control. That's just one of those lucky things yeah. that, that minimize the amount of work that we had to do later. But aside from that, it's it's very straightforward. I wouldn't say it was difficult. Uh, it did not take really any longer than if I had proceeded on the project by myself. And by co-authoring with him, each one of us was able to uh, borrow the other's brain for a little bit, and it made the overall project stronger. I'm really happy that I got to co-author with Gene on this project. Yeah, that that sounds like he had a lot of things just line up for you uh, with with that. So, how did you get into economics? Um, you know, you went to George Mason University, right? I did go to George Mason University. That was where I got my PhD in economics. I graduated in 2014. I actually got into economics as an undergraduate, even earlier than undergraduate, actually. I took an AP macroeconomics course in high school. Uh, and at the time, I thought that I wanted to go into economics because I wanted to be a sort of Keynesian-style macroeconomic planner. I thought, oh, how great it is that we can use math and all these other tools to sort of improve the working of the economy. Uh, as you may know from some of my other writings and perspectives, that's not exactly the the, uh, the position and framework that I adopt anymore. So through studying economics in college and studying economics in graduate school, I gradually came around to a broadly classically liberal position on the, on the social and humane sciences. And George Mason was a great place to do it, studying Austrian economics, uh, Virginia political economy, economic development development, institutional economics. I actually wrote my dissertation on monetary and macroeconomics, 
under Larry White. So technically, that may, that means I'm a macroeconomist. I stayed true to my original calling, but I've done a lot more work in political economy and economic history recently. So basically, economics uh, did kind of confirm for you the Hayekian principle that it demonstrates how little we know. About what we imagine we can design, yep. yes. That's yeah. one of my favorite quotes. It's a fantastic quote. And after reading a lot more Hayek and getting into those ideas, I realized, wow, the way that I initially thought about this just isn't going to fly. <laughs> so that necessitated several view changes over the course of several years to where I broadly arrived at where I am now. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's that's kind of what kept me from becoming a progressive as I was uh, advancing in my faith journey and, and learning about, you know, politics and stuff. So that's that's good. Well, this is kind of interesting. That it's kind of a nice segue into distributism. I'm going to say distributionism one time in this episode, I'm sure, by accident. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, distributism, I think, could gain from some economic understanding, which is, I think, partly what the purpose of your of your article was, was all about. But I guess we should start with what is distributism? I think a lot of people might have a misconception about it. Go ahead and define it and give us a, the lay of the land, as it were. Sure. Distributism is a body of social, economic, and political thought, mostly dating back to the early to early middle part of the 20th century, that deals with the question of the operation of economic systems, namely capitalism and socialism. And according to distributism, both of these systems, capitalism and socialism, really are flip sides of the same coin. And the problem with them is excessive monopolization. So whether you have nominally private organizations doing the monopolization, in which case you have capitalism, or nominally public organizations, in which case you have socialism, the problem is that ordinary people don't have meaningful access to productive property. And that's the problem that distributism is really oriented towards solving, finding a way of making sure that productive property is accessible to the masses. And the two pioneers of distributist thought, whom many still read and cite and engage today, are Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton. So those are the two that are most well-known today, although there are others. Uh, it's also important to add that distributism as a paradigm is explicitly informed by Catholic social teaching, especially the developments of Catholic social thought that arose in the late 19th century and early 20th century with the papal encyclicals Rerum Novarum and Quadra Gesimo Anno, which were basically about changes in the economic and political landscape dealing with capitalism and the breaking up of the last vestiges of the feudal order, especially in Europe. So as the church was wrestling with these new economic and political circumstances and felt the need to clarify her teaching on these things, she elucidated some moral principles that the distributist writers took as given and then tried to ask the question, what would an economic system look like that took these principles seriously? Well, and I think you write in the article that it's it's explicitly not socialist, at least in like the way that they sort of self-define, right? Right. It's explicitly not socialist, but it's also explicitly not capitalist. So this is one of the points of tension that many economists have with distributism. I say many economists, but of course, most economists haven't heard of distributism. <laughs> so of the economists who engage with distributism, one of the problems that they have is these kind of idiosyncratic definitions of socialism and capitalism. The definition that they use of socialism is actually, is actually reasonable. They seem to use it to mean uh, excessive public control over the economy. So that actually meshes pretty well with the economist standard definition of socialism as no private ownership of the means of production. 
But then they go on and define capitalism as a system where the means of production are concentrated in relatively few hands. So rather than do the flip side of if socialism is no private ownership of the means of production, then capitalism must mean private ownership of the means of production. They define capitalism as a system where productive property is excessively concentrated. So I think a lot of economists would would take issue with that definition because it's not a symmetrical definition to capitalism and socialism. Now, obviously, these we can define our terms how we like for starting our analysis, but I think that that particular way of starting the investigation doesn't necessarily get to the underlying realities of how the economic systems function. So it seems like if you were to you were to kind of drop the terms, at least this is my take on it. I'm reading about distributism in your article and I, I was familiar with it to some small extent, you know, by reading some, you know, so I, I know there's some Catholic libertarians that have talked about distributism in small, like in small ways, like favorably in terms of some of its principles and goals and things like that. But, you know, reading about it, I'm like, you know, it seems like these people think that Whichever system you might choose, there's concentration of power or decision making or property um, in, you know, in the capitalist system. The assumption is that it's in the hands of, you know, the wealthy elite or, you know, in the hands of the state on the other side. I think that that's correct. I think that at the end of the day, distributists would see both of these systems as what we would call some form of cronyism. Again, so the nominal distinction between private and public is something that doesn't really do a whole lot of work in the sense that even under a capitalist system, you have wealthy elites who have basically privatized gains and socialized losses. And under socialism, of course, we know all about the incentive and information problems with that economic system. So they both dovetail in that they're flip sides of the same coin and that both are just excessive bigness, bigness and centralization and mm-hmm. monopolization run amok. And the only difference is who is nominally in control over those means of production. And Although I wouldn't go so far as to fully agree with that, I think there's definitely something to that, especially in the operation of modern systems that we call capitalist that really should be called cronyism or crony capitalism, where there's excessive influence between those wielding uh, commercial and political authority, and that can be pernicious for reasons that many economists have have long pointed out. So that's another point of contact uh, between distributist economics and more mainstream political economy. But this point of contact, rather than being attention, is actually, I think, something that's fruitful and insightful. I would say that a lot of libertarians would have some critiques about distributism <laughs> and the way that in which they think about it. But your article also focuses on some positive, which we'll get to. I guess we should start with, you know, what are what are some of the problems with distributist thought? Let's name some of those things from from your perspective. Sure. I think the main problem with distributist thought can be encapsulated in a single sentence. It's that the distributists, frankly, just aren't very good price theorists. There are lots of problems with basic microeconomics in terms of the ordinary operation of economic systems that don't hold a lot of water. Uh, I'll name some examples. If you actually go and read Chesterton and Belloc, they'll say things like, A firm in an industry, if it's the only firm in the industry, has complete control over wages and has complete control over its input prices and can just dictate terms to everybody. Well, that's not exactly true. Just because there's one firm only in an industry, even by assumption, doesn't mean that we have monopolistic conditions. What matters isn't the number of firms that happen to exist in a given industry, but whether that market is contestable, whether there's the threat of free entry and exit 
that can help discipline existing firms. So a lot of times distributists look at markets and see bilateral monopoly problems, where an economist would look at that same market and see, no, this market is in fact contestable. And even though there aren't a quote-unquote large number of buyers and sellers, we nonetheless dovetail to competitive conditions precisely because the market itself has not been monopolized. The firm has not been given a property right to exclude potential competitors. So that's just one example of, I think, uh, ways in which distributists don't necessarily understand the ordinary operation of private property economic systems. It's basic microeconomics, it's price theory, it's understanding where market prices come from in terms of supply and demand, how those forces interact, how we deal with scarcity. There are a lot of issues that really would be cleared up with a introductory economics course of the kind that you might find in high school and college. Now, in their defense, perhaps that knowledge was not as well synthesized and developed at that time. The marginal revolution was well underway by the time that the distributors were writing, and they did clearly, if you go back and read the primary sources, if you go back and read Chesterton or Belloc, they had some familiarity with economic discussions at the time. So maybe you could construct an argument that they ought to have known better. Maybe it's plausible and forgivable that they didn't. But either way, based on what we now know about how supply and demand work, how resources are priced, uh, what determines input prices, what determines wages – a lot of the stuff that they say in support of their more broad institutional arguments just, just doesn't hold water. That's just not how economies work. You also say that a proper understanding of private property, in addition to price theory, is also good in augmenting a distributor's vision. If they're gonna if they're gonna have something good to say for the world that will benefit <laughs> everyone, that they need to have a proper understanding of property rights. Right. And so the point that I just wanted to emphasize there was paying a little more attention to the theoretical institutional foundations to private property economies. Distributism is really a philosophy of private property that wants widespread property ownership. And so one of the tensions that you can find when encountering distributist thought is they don't really have a good perspective on what if people choose to alienate their property? What if they find that it advances their self-interest not by owning their own business or not by owning their own capital, but selling it to somebody who can more profitably employ it? And given that people might want to do that, do we necessarily even think it's feasible or want to tilt the playing field to stop them from doing that? And so distributists tend to say, yes, we want to stop that sort of thing from happening. We want to break up property and prevent its reconcentration. And if that's your goal, all well and good, but there are problems with doing that. Individuals in that society are not going to find it necessarily easiest to have the plans of consumers mesh with the plans of producers because in order for the price system to work its magic in facilitating economic coordination, you need that free exchange of property rights. And so to the extent that distributism is focused on maintaining well-divided property just as an end goal in itself, that can be done but you're also going to necessarily sacrifice a lot in terms of wealth production. Maybe that's a price that you're willing to pay. Maybe it's not. Uh, at times, distributors seem to acknowledge that that's a possibility. At times, they seem to think that there are no costs to doing that. So the former position is tenable, the latter not so much. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, it seems like if the idea is to, I guess, least concentrated amount of property allocation possible, like, well, what about the person who doesn't have much or is unable to do much with the property that they own? Why not sell it for an advantage right. to, to, to make something like how on earth are you going to tell the poor person or the poorer person that they, they can't sell their property to make their lives better? I mean, that's just the first like cynical response I have in my head. That's one response that came early to me and Gene as well. So we're trying very hard to wrestle with this system and wrestle with these terms and ways of looking at the world on their own terms. Because again, to foreshadow a little bit with where I'm sure we're going, uh, we do think that there's a lot that's viable and frankly alive that we're, that's worth taking seriously in this viewpoint. But first, I think it's important that we lay the groundwork by saying, even though there's good stuff here, there's also some stuff that's not so good. And we're not going to be able to do anything with the stuff that's not so good. So what we're really trying to do with this is simultaneously introduce economists to a school of thought or viewpoint that they otherwise might not have heard of. But we're also hoping to encourage distributists to approach their subject with an appreciation of the subtleties of price theory. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm really making an ethical argument about private property ownership when, in fact, that ethical argument rests on factual errors about how economies actually do work. And given that most distributists tend to be Thomists anyways, uh, I think that a Thomist would be the first to reject this clean dichotomy between means thinking and ends thinking. The idea that they're categorically different statements that you can talk about ends without also necessarily talking about means wouldn't really hold to somebody whose metaphysical worldview is informed by Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, I think from from what you've said so far, uh, I don't know how many libertarians would be super interested in distributive thoughts. So we might want to shift our shift our gears toward like, well, why? You know, I think that's a very clever approach uh, to you know getting a distributist to consider <laughs> in a really important way why they should think about property rights and price theory. So what what do we have as libertarians to learn from the distributist model? Quite a bit, I think. I think the distributist concern with the prerequisites. The free society is worth taking more seriously than it currently is. So distributists do say a lot that's good and correct about how the playing field can be tilted against small property holders and small business owners. And frequently, I didn't have so much of this in the article that I wrote with Gene, uh, but I've since discovered this as I went back and did my own further explorations of distributism. There are a lot of intriguing arguments about the initial rise of economic freedom and the institutions that supported it, when you have institutions that support private property rights, when you have institutions that support economic freedom, it tends to be the case that these institutions are bargained for in an environment where individuals are already de facto in a relatively egalitarian economic circumstance. You can find this argument especially in Hilaire Belloc's book, The Servile State, where he talks about the evolution of free institutions from medieval Europe. And so economists, including many who are libertarians, have this idea that the direction of causality always runs from institutions to economic freedom. First, you set up the right rules of the game, and then you can have economic freedom as an outcome of that. And that makes sense conceptually. It's definitely true that economic outcomes, such as the distribution of wealth, depend on the underlying rules of the game. But it's equally true that there can be bidirectional feedback effects. People can bargain for different rules of the game depending on their initial economic possessions that help them reach certain bargains, that incentivize them to act certain ways. So I think what's really interesting about the distributists is that they get us seriously to consider the question of what if free societies can only be maintained 
if ordinary individuals have some stake in maintaining an ownership society? What if free institutions can only be maintained if ordinary people think and act like owners? This is not something that's unique to distributism. You can find this in Thomas Jefferson, for example. And so that's a very interesting challenge, I think, to how you actually get and keep a free society that sort of reverses the way that we usually think about these things. Especially American libertarians were all about, oh, set up a right constitution and that will make sure that we get a fertile framework for getting economic freedom. What if you first need economic freedom and security and then that's how you get freedom? It's certainly at least plausible that there are these bi-directional feedback effects between outcomes and institutions. And that's something that distributists say that I think is particularly interesting and something that not enough social scientists are addressing. How exactly does a distributist model tilt the playing field against small business and individual proprietors? I don't think a distributist model does do that. I think that distributism can be particularly helpful in directing our attention to what it is in existing economic and political systems that do that. And so distributists will rightly point out the massive amount of regulation and state intervention that we have in economies, even if it's well-intentioned, can actually be something that acts against small ownership and individual proprietors. Things like the complexity of the tax code, uh, regulations that mandate safety standards, again, although well-intentioned, these things that basically take the form of a fixed cost for doing any business in an industry, you necessarily have to comply with XYZ rules, XYZ procedures, XYZ regulations. These are all things that large, deep-pocketed, already entrenched firms can better deal with at the expense of smaller firms that are not as well capitalized. And so attempts to make the economy more egalitarian, more just, if attempted in a sort of top-down manner, in an administrative regulatory manner, can inadvertently create all sorts of costs to individual ownership and small proprietorships. And that's something that a lot of distributors pay attention to that I definitely think is worth emphasizing. That's something that libertarians often point out as well in the arguments against regulation is that, you know, progressives especially unwittingly enable big business to be predators against small business through, you know, regulation. Absolutely. This is not something that, uh, that's unique to distributism, but I do think it's something that they say and that they have an interesting take on that can be complementary to existing ways that we look at these problems, whether we look at it from the perspective of libertarian class theory or value-free social science slash political economy. So I think it's one more way of understanding these problems, and I think that this is actually an area on which all three of those areas overlap. And when you have that kind of when you have that degree of overlapping consensus on what aspects of the economic systems do and do not tilt against smallness, that's probably an indication that you're onto something. That's probably somewhere that you want to direct your scarce mental resources to trying understanding the, uh, understanding better those social processes. Are there any other places where distributism and libertarian economic thinking align? So we have the institutional foundations of the free society. We have the often regressive effects of the welfare state and regulation. I would say that those are the big two. What's really interesting about distributism is, again, because it's explicitly informed by Catholic social teaching, you frequently have positive and normative analysis occurring in the same vein, occurring in the same often paragraph when you read these authors. That can be a little bit troubling if you're trying to sort out whether your interlocutor is talking about how things do work versus how things ought to work. 
But at the same time, I think that we need to remember that political economy is just as much art as it is science. James Buchanan, a Nobel laureate in economics, who's one of my intellectual mentors, called economics a science between predictive science and moral philosophy. So again, we can't just restrict ourselves to only means-ends analysis. Economics as a discipline was devoted to exploring the wealth and poverty of nations in the context and in the service of understanding the conditions for human flourishing. So we're not meant to be just value-free social scientists. We are supposed to be that, right? Because you can't understand how societies grow, how they flourish without doing factual social science. But it's not enough to just be that. You need to have an underlying ethical vision. You need to have an underlying normative vision, if only because that's going to direct the problems that you work on, the problems that you find of ethical importance that are worth your time and attention. But it also reminds us what this is all for. Why are we spending our time working on these problems? What is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal can be and should be human flourishing. And distributism is rooted in an ethical context that never loses sight of that. And I think that that's a perspective that could actually improve modern social science. How does this play into subsidiarity? I mean, I was reading your article and, you know, it wasn't even because you talk about it near the end and about halfway through the article, I'm like, I bet they're going to talk about subsidiarity. <laughs> so I kind of and sure enough, anticipated, there and sure enough, there it was, because that's a very important Catholic social teaching as well. Right. So. Uh, Subsidiarity, I can't remember which of the papal encyclicals it was It was first promulgated in, but subsidiarity is basically this idea that any human society has multiple levels or orders at which governance occurs from the most local, right, family, town, local government, to the most distant, the national government. You have all these organizations, whether civic or political or economic, in between. So it's definitely a spectrum more than a set of categories. Given that, the principle of subsidiarity says that social problems should be left to the most local unit possible. Communities of higher orders should not impinge on the internal operations of communities of lower orders. And that's a very important point because on the one hand, we in part find our meaning and make our lives create ourselves through operating in these communities. And so when communities of higher orders impinge unjustly on communities of lower orders, that's going to necessarily impact and often negatively the way that people can develop their potentials and develop their virtues and flourish as human beings. Uh, there's also an interesting technical economics point on this, where how in the public economics literature, one of the principles is it makes sense to relegate whenever you have to deal with external effects when people undertake actions whose consequences affect third parties who do not consent to having those actions affect them. We call them externalities in economics. One of the most important things that governance can do with respect to externalities is get people to take account of the full costs and benefits of their actions. That's what governance institutions are ultimately trying to do to, in part, solve that problem. And so subsidiarity in that context teaches us that we should relegate the solving of these externality problems to the smallest level community that can feasibly deal with them because those are going to be the communities that have access to the local knowledge necessary to effectively deal with the problem. And they're also going to be the communities that individuals can most meaningfully change the operation of. If the community or the organization is governing in a poor manner, individuals are going to have more impact on changing how that actually 
plays out either by exercising their voice rights if they vote or by exercising exit rights, just basically saying I'm taking my ball and going home. And those local checks, those local counterbalancing pressures that individuals can place on their governance institutions really get muted the higher up the governance hierarchy you go. So in order to maintain a degree of consent and popular control of how these processes work, at the same time that we want them to solve these social problems, it's important to remember that we're basically employing a Faustian bargain here, right? When we when we turn to government to solve our problems for us. On the one hand, it's effective precisely because it has this power, but that power can be abused. And if that power is abused, we need to find some way to check it and to stop it. And that's going to be more effective if we keep power concentrated at more local levels. And so given that insight, there's actually a lot of overlap between public economics and the economics of governance, the economics of institutions, and Catholic social teaching on subsidiarity. Obviously, the latter tends to focus on the ethical aspects of this, the moral aspects associated with human flourishing and living a human life oriented to your proper objective end, which is receiving the grace of God. But also, there are positive social scientific points about how to govern and operate these communities and organizations that help us live peacefully together. So that's yet another area and uh, yet another place where you have a point of contact between the ethical perspective suggested by Catholic social teaching and the positive perspective of modern social science. So concluding your your analysis of distributism and how economic thought can you know influence it, what what do you say to people if you if you meet I mean, have you conversed with distributists and have had like debates or arguments or just conversations with them? Or is this, you know, what what would you say to them and be like, hey, I mean, I know this part of what you've just been saying this last you know, 30 minutes, but like, you know, the, the summary, uh, what direction are we going here? I would say to so I haven't had that many conversations with people who advocate distributism or would work towards a more distributist vision of society. Uh, this is still a pretty new research area for me, and I'm hoping that I can find those interlocutors to have some uh, productive conversations with. The big picture takeaway, if I were to talk with such people, is that you guys have a really interesting story about human flourishing, and you have a really interesting story about institutional operation and how governance works. And you have a grand vision of human welfare and human well-being that's worth taking seriously. But in order to most fully realize that vision, you need to have a proper understanding of means oriented towards ends. In other words, you need to have a proper understanding of microeconomics. It's not going to help us achieve a free society. Even if we agree on what human freedom is and why we want it, we're not going to be most effective in getting that unless we can actually suss out which strategies, which means we employ are going to help us advance the kind of institutions that orient us towards that particular vision of freedom. This is a means-ends problem. You can't get around the fact that you need to understand how economies actually do work. You can't get around the fact that you need to have a solid understanding of price theory in order to have the kind of conversation at a broader level that you want to have. And this is something that I think one economist who's who's often discussed in both libertarian and distributive slash Catholic circles has done a really good job of incorporating. His name was Wilhelm Rufke, and he was one of the architects of the German economic miracle following the Second World War and also an early theorist of what came to be known as the social market economy. So he was a gentleman who was writing at the middle part of the 20th century on a lot of the issues that distributists were concerned about, but he was also a very careful economist. 
So he was very much more precise in his price theoretic analysis of the sorts of situations that distributists were concerned about. The difference was he had the rigorous training in economics to analyze these means ends problems as an economist. And so you need to have both. You need to have the broad vision of human flourishing. You need to have the ethical and humane concerns. But that does not mean it's okay to be imprecise when it comes to the means ends problems, because it's only by analyzing the means correctly that we're going to figure out whether we can actually achieve the end that we want to achieve. So the good economics has to come first. It's analytically, I think, I think that that's going to be the area that requires the most attention and the most points of agreement. Well, it's not going to be any surprise to almost every one of our listeners that economics needs to influence and infiltrate the way we think about social problems. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that's going to shock too many people. <laughs> but at the same time, it's an important point that needs to be said. Yeah, well, and honestly, I think the the way in which you address the problems of distributism as an economist helps give an example of the ways in which you can say, all right, fine, you have some really good things going for you, but let's assist and learn from each other. And here's some ways in which we've, in the last hundred years, especially if not longer, learned a lot about price theory, private property, how how does the economy work, as opposed to just making moral pronouncements and hoping that that's, that we're, you know, in the ballpark. Uh, So you demonstrate, I guess, in short, you demonstrate what it's like to show someone who may not be economically trained or a a political thought that may not be economically informed how economic information is going to enhance their worldview. Right. And I'm definitely not, I'm not trying to create barriers to entry to the great conversation. I'm not trying to say, if you want to do distributist political economy, first go out and get a PhD in good old fashioned (laughs) economics. No, you don't need to do that. You know, I'm not just trying to protect my own, you know, cartelized. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to keep my own wage high here. But the idea is it's actually pretty straightforward to acquire a sufficient understanding of basic economics, precisely because the economic way of thinking is one framework consistently applied to an almost infinite number of social problems. It's basically understanding how individuals make choices and how those choices are channeled through institutions to create social outcomes. And so through a not huge investment in the positive social science, you can actually acquire a huge degree of analytical insight. So you don't need a college degree in economics. You certainly don't need an advanced degree in economics, but you do need to spend a little time going through basic price theory. You do need to spend a little time making sure that you understand the most fundamental lessons that economics has to teach about how markets work, how things are priced how wealth is distributed, where those rules that do the distributing come from. These are things that we simply can't ignore. Like you just said, we can't just talk only about the ends and then figure out the means question later. That's not going to do it. That might be the well-intentioned way, or I should say that might be a well-intentioned way, but focusing exclusively on the ends without also paying sufficient attention to the means is how you can actually really, really mess up your society inadvertently. We've seen it happen all throughout the 20th century. Yeah, well, I think that's excellent. And if listeners didn't know already, you can actually read this for free at ChristianLibertarianReview.com. You can go to LibertarianChristians.com and you can click on journal uh, on our page and it'll take you to the academic journal. You can purchase a copy on Amazon. You can even get it for your Kindle. 
If you purchase a physical copy, you get the Kindle version for free. We have all kinds of ways to get it to you. Uh, and this is this is just one of the articles. I'll just read the title, Dead Ends and Living Currents, Distributism as a Progressive Research Program. And we're with one of the co-authors, Alex Salter. And Alex, what's next for you uh, in terms of any more research projects? Where are you, where are you headed? Well, I'm actually working right now on another project on distributism. Uh, this I hope to be a longer project, hopefully culminating in a book. Uh, I've actually gone back and reread Chesterton and Belloc again in preparation for this project. And going through their arguments, I was again struck by how on the one hand, a lot of the things that they say about the operation of economic systems and even just basic questions of price theory will not hold water, so it just doesn't work. And yet they make they somehow make really, really interesting institutional points that have several points of contact with debates that are happening within contemporary scholarly literatures about the institutional prerequisites for free and flourishing societies. So this is fascinating to me how in this particular case – They've managed to actually point out some conceptual difficulties in our conversations about where economic freedom and economic security come from. And I think that, again, to the extent that economists pay attention to these guys, they immediately see, oh, we know from price theory that that's not how this works. I don't need to continue reading these guys. These mistakes are so basic that I don't need to take them seriously. I admit that was my first impression when I went back and read them. But the more I read, the more I realized, no, they're actually able to build towards something that we do have to wrestle with. This idea of how you get and sustain, not just get, but get and keep free societies. And so I'm hoping to explore that that broader point in a, in a book-length project that I'm working on right now. Well, that's exciting. So when when that's about to wrap up, let me know and we'll probably have you on to talk about more. I'd be happy to. That'd be great. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us for our podcast. I've enjoyed this conversation and uh, I will look forward to a forthcoming book or some formation of this project that you're working on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.